0: just going to read this morning from 1 uh, Peter, chapter 2. We've been looking at 1 Peter for a little while. We're going to continue in that just now. Just as you turn in your Bibles, just to say, I think the weather's wonderful today. It's great to get back to some real weather. Marvellous. Anyway, okay. So chapter 4, I'm just going to read 1 Peter, chapter 2, from verse 4. And we read, Peter says, As you come to him... The living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you that you have given to us that which is most precious in our Lord Jesus Christ. You held nothing back from us. You gave to us of the very best you gave to us, of that which is beyond our understanding in that love of Christ. And, Father, we pray that you'll help us in the same way to hold nothing back from you as we come and bring our offering to you, as we come and offer our very lives to you. Lord, may we hold nothing back but give of everything we have for the glory of your name. Amen. I read a story once about a man who was convinced and and worried that he was dead. He went round telling his friends and his family constantly, wailing and just saying to them that, that he was dead, he was bereft. And they did everything they could to comfort him and tell him that this was not in fact the case. But no matter what they said, they could not shake him from his conviction that he was dead. Finally, they managed to persuade him to go to his doctor, which took a bit of doing, because why would someone who's dead go to the doctor? But he went to his doctor, and his doctor tried every logical argument he could think of to convince this man that he wasn't dead. And so left from him the burden of, of worry about his family and, and his friends that he was unnecessarily carried. Finally the doctor struck on a foolproof plan. So he managed to get the man to the point of agreeing that dead men, certainly people who'd been as dead for as long as he claimed, that dead men don't bleed. And at the moment this was agreed, the doctor suddenly and viciously stuck a needle in this poor man's finger. And immediately the blood began to flow. So the doctor looked at his patient triumphantly and said, what have you got to say to that then? Well, what do you know? Dead men do bleed after all. (laughs) Now that is a, a crazy, irrational, and maybe slightly humorous example of one kind of worry. But all of us have got things at times that worry us, haven't we? We know that we shouldn't worry. We know that, that worrying does us no good. But we're frail, fragile human beings. And so sometimes, despite ourselves and all that we know and all that we believe, we find ourselves worrying. And for some of us, that might even have reached the point where it is our worries and our fears that are dominating us, dominating our lives, and we feel helpless and powerless in the face of, of these things so we wonder what is the answer is there an answer to these worries that seem about to overwhelm us is there an answer Peter here tells us that there is that we need to draw near to God that's the answer now maybe for some of us here today that seems so far removed from our present experience as to seem incredible impossible Could it be true? Could it be true? Could it be possible that we could draw near to God, draw near to him in such a way that he fills our lives, deals with our worries and fears, that he gives us in our lives his power and his peace? Perhaps for some of us, though, well, we believe in this. In theory, we do. But it's been so long since we've experienced the reality of this. So long since we've really sensed ourselves drawing near to God in such a way that these deepest needs of our heart and life are met that we find it hard today to to imagine that this could actually happen again. That it might actually be possible once more again for us to draw near to God in a life-changing, life-transforming way. Well, this passage we're looking at now not only tells us that this is possible, but it also tells us the way in to this experience and tells us something of what this experience will then mean in our lives, how it will express itself in our lives. So let's look at this passage then, beginning first by looking at the key. What I believe is the key to understanding properly What Peter actually says here, and this relates to what the Bible says about where the presence of God can be known. The dwelling place, you might say, of God. And if you go right back into the very early stages of God's interactions with his people, well then, as as they wander through the desert, the visible reassuring symbol of God's presence with them was as Exodus 13, 21, 22 tells us, was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Later, though, as the people became more, more settled, so the, the presence of God became associated with a place. So in the time of Solomon, the temple was said to be the dwelling place of God. First Kings 8, 10 and 11 says of the dedication of the temple And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So for a time then in the history of God's people, the temple was the place in all the earth where God particularly could be known. However, The grievous and repeated sin of God's people eventually had its effect, as it always does. And so the glory of the Lord left the temple in the time of Ezekiel. You can read about that in Ezekiel 10 and 11. And then, because of the sin of God's people, the Lord then let them be taken from their land into exile. And so the, the temple, that place where once His glory, His presence had been known supremely among the temple, fell into ruin. However, as the people repented, so the Lord restored the remnant to their land. And then the temple was rebuilt. However, despite the the promise of Haggai 2 verse 9, that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, yet God's glory did not descend to fill the temple then, as it had in the time of Solomon. Now, Malachi, he prophesied into this, Malachi 3 verse 1, he prophesied that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But God's people waited 400 years for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And when it was fulfilled, it was fulfilled not in a place, but rather by a person. It was fulfilled in that famous story that certainly read, if if not actually preached on most Christmases. That story of Simeon and Anna witnessing the baby Jesus being brought into the temple the one who was now to be the savior messiah the lord of his people the one who was to be the new and better dwelling of god because god in his person god in human flesh he brought his glory right in to our very midst as it says in the bible in that famous verse john 1:14 it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory as of the one and only Son of the Father. And then, after his death for our sin, after his resurrection and his victory, after the giving of the Spirit, after this, then we're told that the glory of God which before was centred in Jesus, that dwelt in Jesus, that now by the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, can now be known by all God's people. So now you see the church in the sense of the people of God. Now the church is the true temple of God. God's people are where he dwells in his glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. John fourteen twenty three. we read that Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now we could go on here, and particularly into what it says in Revelation about the, the end of the age, about the, the whole earth, the new heaven and the new earth, being then the temple, being the dwelling place of God. But for the purposes we have this morning, we've gone as far as we we need to go with this. The question we now need to ask though is if we live in the age, if we live at the time when the presence of God can be known by all men and by all women, if in our time it is possible to draw near to God in an unprecedented way, to know him drawing near to us, to know his power, his life, his love at work in us. If this is possible, then what is the way in to this experience? The answer, of course, is no great surprise. That is that the way in to this experience, the way to know the presence of God, the way to draw near to God, really knowing God in your heart and in your life, It's Jesus. Again, it's Jesus. Because, you see, we're told here, he is the living stone. He is the cornerstone, the keystone of the the new temple. And all of these, incidentally, being Old Testament scriptures that here are applied to Christ and seen as being fulfilled in Christ. And they all emphasize the fact of the uniqueness and of the supremacy of of Jesus Christ, and certainly of his supremacy and superiority over any Old Testament temple that was made of dead stones. But there are three words here, though, that are used in relation to Jesus, who is the way in to the presence of God, to that relationship of a new intimacy with God. Three words here that I think it's important we take note of. And these words are rejected, chosen, and precious. For Christ is rejected by men. He is rejected by the world. Popular opinion was against Christ at the time of his coming. You see, the vast majority rejected Jesus, and they rejected him because they did not like the message that Jesus brought. They didn't like it. When Jesus told them that they were by nature sinners. They didn't like it when he told them that sin affected every part of their life. And that it made them unfit for the presence of a holy God and brought them under his judgment. And they certainly didn't like it. When he told them that as sinners they could do nothing about their own situation. When he told them that all their good works, all their keeping of the law was tainted by their basic sin and so unacceptable to a holy God. And they didn't like it when he then went on to tell them that the only way now to get right with God was to put their trust in him, in God's son, God in human flesh, God given as the sacrifice for their sin. And so men, the world, the vast majority, popular opinion, rejected Jesus in his own day. Now you see, in our time, we live again in a society that by and large has rejected Christ, that in fact has even rejected the very idea of there being a creator God. Because you see, after centuries upon centuries of progress, as we've lived as a society based at least on Christian principles, well, over the last hundred years or so, our leaders, some of the influential thinkers, some of the media figures, opinion makers, etc., they decided that we didn't need God anymore. They decided that, that we're too advanced, too sophisticated, too scientific to need God now. With all the baggage, all the, the standards and rules and regulations that, that go along with that, we don't need God, they say. We don't need a God like this. Now, a few philosophers and thinkers saw and continue to see the end result of this. That is that if you have a world that came about by chance and that's going nowhere, well then what is the meaning of life? What's the point? Why should we care? And more than that, why should we do good? Why should we be good? Woody Allen, whose films I, I don't like, just can't understand them, and who certainly is not a Christian, he at least, has said the honesty, to face up to what we're left with in a godless world. And that is, this is what he says, alienation, loneliness, and emptiness, verging on Madness. And in his film, Annie Hall, he puts it in this way. Life is divided into the horrible and the miserable. It's a cheery guy, that's why I don't like his films. Now, of course, that is pessimistic, but if you, if you really think about it, if you actually think about it, if this world, with its cruelty and tragedy, is all that there is, even if we ourselves live a comfortable life that that perhaps largely is shielded from that. Yet, if what we have is really all there is, if this is it, nothing more than a few years with our families, then after that, nothing. What we did, what we were, what we contributed, it all means nothing. Well, isn't that? Horrible and miserable. But that's the world's view. The world's attitude to Jesus. They reject him. God's view, however, God's attitude is something very different. For to God, Jesus is chosen. And he is precious. That is, he's God's chosen way of dealing with man's sin. And he's precious to him because of who he is and because of what he has done. You see, the big question is, as it always is, is what is our reaction to Jesus going to be? What's our reaction? Are we going to join with the world and reject him? Are we going to do that? Are we going to reject him because of our pride, because we join with those Jews of an earlier time, because we cannot bear the thought that in and of ourselves we are unacceptable to God? Or alternatively, are we going to reject him? Because, well, that, that's what everybody else does. And we don't want to be different. We don't want to stand out from the crowd. We don't want to go against the floor. Well, there are all sorts of reasons, let me tell you, for rejecting Jesus. None of them good in my view, but there is also an alternative. There's an alternative. And that is to see and open our eyes and see the, the effect that rejecting Jesus has had, not only on society in general, but also on our lives as individuals. To see it, to recognise that because we're part of a society that's rejected Christ, because individually we've absorbed that and chosen to follow that lead, that it's because of this that we feel emptiness deep within ourselves. It's because of this that our lives lack purpose and meaning and direction with all the worry and fear and apathy and hopelessness that goes along with that. You see, these things are part of our lives, not primarily because of who we are and because of what our life experience has been, but primarily these things are part of our lives because we have rejected Jesus Christ and because of that, are separate from God. However, we can totally turn our lives around and we can do it right now by choosing Jesus, by choosing the chosen one of God. Or if we know Jesus, if at some point in our life we have, we know we've come to him in faith, but maybe today... Our call is to choose again to actually put him at the center rather than the periphery of life. Maybe today our choice is to make him again first in everything. And what this involves is saying, Lord, I accept my situation. I accept my need. I accept what's brought me to this situation. But above all, I accept Your solution. I accept Jesus. I accept by faith to accept the offer of life that you give me real life, full life in Jesus Christ. And as we do this, as we choose Jesus, we find then that Jesus is the way from fear and worry and hopelessness and despair, that He's the way right into the very presence of God right into life and hope and peace and purpose. And then following on, we also find, or at least we should find if our thinking and understanding and appreciation of all this is right, we'll find that the Jesus we have chosen, the chosen one, the one chosen by God, we'll find that he becomes precious, that he is precious to us. For as we appreciate what Jesus has done, as we appreciate what he gave and and how he loves us, then suddenly what we'll find is that we love him with a love the like of which we've never known before. And you know, when we love Jesus in this kind of way, when we love him like this, then while all our problems won't just go away as we become Christians, some will as God changes and transforms us, Yet what will happen? What will happen? What should happen is we love Jesus as we should. What will happen is that as our perspective on life changes because of this, as suddenly we're not the most important thing in our life, but Jesus is. So then, because of this, issues and things that now seem massive and, and are scary, insurmountable, we'll find these things shrinking down inside and we'll find that with Jesus we can deal with them or at least we can endure them what I want us to do now just to finish is, is move on just for a little while just to look at the treasure at the treasure that's ours the blessing that we find as through this way that is Christ we come into the presence of God now there's all we could say here but because, as always, we're limited by time, I'm just going to focus on two of these treasures, on two of these blessings that become ours in Christ. So, first, then, we become living stones. Verse 4 tells us, as we come to Him, it's that, that as we come to Jesus, then, we become part of the living temple of God. As by the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who now by faith lives and works in us, and as by the refining work of the Word of God that the verses that are just prior to the verses we're looking at are all about, as by their influence in our lives, the likeness of Christ, the living stone, is reproduced in us. But notice here the different things that are interconnected. The work of the Word, of the Spirit, Growth into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then integration into becoming part of the fellowship, the family of the temple that is the body, that is the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You see, what I believe this tells us, at least this, is that if somebody says to us that they're really into the Word of God, they love God's Word, study the Word of God, and if they tell us that the the Spirit is at work in them, that they, they are living in close fellowship with Jesus, but at the same time, if they're not really living as part of the body, part of the church, of that living temple, if they're perhaps not even getting on with the people of God, not ready to meet with the people of God, what that tells us or at least surely suggests is that despite what that person claims, despite even what they believe, that things are not as they say, that they're not truly living filled with the Spirit, that they're not in close relationship. With Jesus. And that though they might have real knowledge of the Word of God, yet they're not living in obedience to it, which in fact makes all their knowledge meaningless and worthless. The second blessing that we're told here that's ours is through Christ we're drawn into the presence of God is, is closely related to this. That is that as priests of this living temple, we are able to offer. Spiritual sacrifices to God. Verse 5 again. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now there are all sorts of things we could look at here, including the fact that, that we are all priests in Christ. That while in the Old Testament, priests were a special group, a group who had special access to God, who had special privileges in worship, special fellowship with God. But that now, in Christ, this is now open to all who come to God through him. see, What this tells us then is that any Christian group who've got a special group among them, whether they're called priests or not, that, that really doesn't matter. But if there's a group among any grouping of God's people, who are seen as having special privileges before God, special access to God, who are seen as being special before God, that that not only is unbiblical, it's also limiting and even, I believe, is dangerous. For once you see you have this special group, what does that then say about the rest of God's people? That they're not so special, that they're maybe not so important, that they can only go so far in their relationship with God. You see, what we have again here is Old Testament thinking still being held to wrongly by some New Testament Believers and it is dangerous, it is limited because it robs us of the riches of the inheritance that God actually has for all his people in Jesus Christ. But what about these spiritual sacrifices that as priests were able to offer to God? These spiritual sacrifices that, as such, are far superior. To the animal and the other sacrifices of the Old Testament, well in the New Testament, the kind of things that are seen as spiritual sacrifices are things like offering our bodies to God for His service, Romans 12 verse one, or the giving of gifts to enable the spreading of the gospel, Philippians 4:18, the singing of praise in Hebrews 13:15, doing good, sharing our possessions, etc. And and you see, the sheer variety and, and breadth of these examples, I believe, demonstrates that, in fact, anything that we do out of a love for God and to serve God, anything, these are a spiritual sacrifice to God. And this rises... These sacrifices rises like an aroma from the altar of our life to the throne of God. And these things bring him delight. These bring God joy. These bring him blessed. But how wonderful, you see, this is. Because as we think of Jesus as chosen and precious... And as we think of all he gave for us, and as we think of just how Jesus loves us, well, then it's easy, isn't it? It's even natural to think just how inadequate anything that we have to offer is in comparison to that, is in the light of that. And so we can maybe find ourselves coming into God's presence feeling pretty downhearted and miserable and depressed, you know. What have I got? Who am I? How can I please God? What I want to say to you now is that we're right in thinking that whatever we have to offer back to God is inadequate in the light of what we have given, what he has given us. We're right to think that. But think about this. Look at this from a different perspective. Such is God's love for us. So precious and loved by God are we. That whatever we bring as a genuine love offering to him is to him a joy and a blessing. Those simple things that you do that you maybe see as nothing. The work you put in in secret for the Lord. The practical things that you do the time that you spend in his word, the time that you spend in prayer, the simple witness for the gospel that you share with a neighbor or a friend. As these things are done, not for your sake, not to make you feel good, not to impress someone else, but as these things are done simply for the Lord, because you love him, then these things Bring joy to God. So I want to say to you, come into God's presence, and as you do, come into his presence, not centering on your weakness. Rather, come centering on him, determined to serve him and to love him. And as you do so, knowing that God finds joy in you. He finds joy in you. Come in that way and you in return will find life's greatest joy in your God let's come and pray together Father we want to thank you for just the greatness of your love for us For well, it's hard to understand not only what you gave for us in Jesus but how much you really do love us and how our love for you is something that matters so much to you. Lord, help us to rejoice in who we are in Christ. Help us to rejoice in all you've given for us. Help us to rejoice that by faith in Christ, we are living stones, part of that living temple of the Lord. Father, we bless you for your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.